It is an absolute joy to be with you here this morning. Um, Our relationship with you is a close one in that it is uh, my father who stands in this pulpit week after week and proclaims to you faithfully God's word. And it is my absolute honor to be standing here in his stead this morning. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 is where we will be working this morning. And throughout this Advent season, we've been rehearsing and retelling the greatest story of all time. The story of God adding to himself flesh, taking on flesh, becoming a man so that we might become sons and daughters of God. The name given to Christ here, Emmanuel, of course noted even by naming this congregation, this word Emmanuel, ringing with good news, God is with us. So during the season, we long with expectancy, especially those of you who are younger, for what gifts you'll be getting. We give elaborate gifts to one another, of course, because Christ has been given to us by God, this immeasurable gift of God's love and grace that's been extended to us. Advent is a story. Now, if you're new to the church world, this word Advent is not meant to be used as a weapon, but a tool. Advent simply means the appearing of God. It's the good news, the coming, the revealing of who God is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So what we do in the season is we gather our hearts around the fires of the gospel and we remember We retell, we're warmed in the remembering and retelling of the gospel of Jesus. God's presence has, of course, always been with his people from the garden to the wilderness wanderings all throughout the Old Testament. But in Christ, God is with us in a unique, in a spectacular way. The word of God was made flesh. The title of the sermon this morning is God's final word. God's final word. Words matter. Words express, they shape. Words have the power to create and sustain and even change a culture. Words matter so much. Now, I'm a student of words. I love words. I collect them from various places. I have an entire collection of old hymnals, not like some of you when you think old hymnal, you thought immediately like the 1960 or like the 1940 Broadman hymnal. But no, I'm talking way before that, decades, centuries before that, before hymnals even had music printed in them when they were just collections of words whose aim is to is to bring kindling around the hearts of God's people so that the fires of the Spirit could ignite Burst into flame, love for the Son of God. I collect words. We have a phrase in our house, uh, two phrases that are a paired couple. The first is this, what I say matters and how I say it matters. Both of those are critical, right? We're trying to teach our kids everything you say has consequences and how you say it matters. Now, their dad needs to be reminded of that as much as anyone. What we say matters. Words matter. Of course, no words carry as much weight, as much authority, as when God is speaking to his people. Now, as you've opened up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, this is God's word to his people. 
The book of Hebrews is a letter. And in these first few verses, they contain some of the most elegant, articulate Greek language that exists in all of the New Testament. Now, most of us don't read Greek, so uh, that, that might fall by us. But what's happening here is very poetic. It's very expressive. God is communicating to his people. These are intentional words. Now, we don't even know really who wrote this book, the letter to the Hebrews. Some say it might be the, uh, the Apostle Apollo. Some say it may be Luke. But we do know this letter was written and was helpful to God's people, specifically who were dealing with doubt and with walking back toward a life that they had once known. Of course, we see here who this letter was written to. We don't know specifically the church, but it was apparently written to Hebrews. Now you think, well, that's remarkable. How did you know that? Well, it says right there on the first page, the letter to the Hebrews. No, it wasn't you know, years of seminary education. It was simply just we read the page together. So this is a letter being written to a small group of Christians recently converted. They'd been walking by the law. They'd been adhering to the written word of God. And now they hear the fulfillment of every promise of God given in the person and work of Jesus. And in Christ, all of God's promises come true. In Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen. So these newly formed uh, Christians, this new church that's been gathered together, have this lingering in their heart to walk back and live a life that they once knew. And what this letter is doing is saying, no, no, continue to walk by faith in the Son of God, in the fulfillment of the law. Continue to believe what the writer of Hebrews wants us to see is that Jesus is better than the law. That Jesus is the fulfillment, the totality of that law. They're just like us. These people need to be pointed back to a Savior. Be reminded of what Jesus had done for them. Some of us are like ships being tossed about on the open water. And we forget that Christ is the sure and steady foundation of our souls. And the writer of Hebrews says, continue to walk by faith in the Son of God. Continue to walk in belief, in repentance Believing that Jesus is better. So when the writer puts his pen to the paper and starts showing them that Jesus is God, he wants them to know that Jesus is better than anything that they could imagine. He wants them to behold the same Christ that his eyes have seen. And so these words today from the scripture are not just meant for these people from long ago. These words are meant for you and for me. God's word speaks into our suffering. God's word speaks into our doubting. God's word speaks into our silliness. And this is what he does. He brings tidings of comfort and joy. So we've exactly been singing about here this morning. And so as we've gathered together today on this final Lord's Day of this calendar year, my prayer is that we also would gather our hearts around the word of God and hear him speak to us a word of encouragement, a word of remembrance, a word to come and to believe in Jesus Christ and by believing, find life in his name. My question to you as we begin is, have you come today to hear the word of God? God is speaking to his people. What he says matters and how he says it matters. Let's listen together as we hear what God has to say to us.
Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is God's word. His perfect word. His word spoken, and delivered, and proclaimed to us today. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and may God's words have their way in us today echoing through the chambers of our souls bringing us to life in Christ A couple of things I want us to note from this text. The first is this, that God has always spoken. God's always spoken. We see this in the very beginning of this letter. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. God spoke. Our God is not like the other gods that people claim. Our God is relentless in communicating. This is what he does. He gathers up what is true about himself and he proclaims it so that he could be known. Ours is the God of self-disclosure. This is not like the gods of other people who, who hide in obscurity and in secret. No, our God proclaims who he is. And he's always been doing this throughout the Old Testament, progressively showing us who he is. God wastes no time in speaking to his people. Flip with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. The Bible doesn't go three verses without telling us that ours is the God who speaks. Listen to what God's word says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the water. And God said. And God spoke. Let there be light. God spoke. We have the Spirit of God hovering. We have God speaking. God communicating. And from the words of God flow life. From the words of God flow light. When he speaks, he makes promises with men. Just a couple of pages later in the book of Genesis, he says, If you eat from this tree, you will surely die. God speaks. And God keeps his word. And we ate. And in our eating, we died. And then he speaks through making a covenant with this woman in the garden by saying that one day, this glorious day would come where her seed would in fact crush the seed of the serpent. And God kept his promise. God kept speaking through the words of Moses. God kept speaking through the burning bush and through the cloud by day and the fire by night. God is continually revealing. In Genesis 12, God speaks and he says, Abram, though you were old, through you I will bless you. 
And one day your children will count the number of, of grains of sand on the shore. The number of stars in the sky. God speaking to us through burning bushes, through prophets, through rain, through dry, through men, through women. God speaking. And throughout this entire swooping movement of God revealing himself to his people stands one clear thought. One day a deliverer will come. This is what God's been saying. He's been chasing after us, revealing himself, making himself known, and making promises Making promises with us. People who had, have no birthright. People who have no claim to know him. He makes himself known. And he says, a deliverer will come. A few weeks ago when we were in family worship one night, which you never quite know how that's going to go, right? We have four kids, eight and under. So when I say family worship, I don't want you to have this kind of Puritan or Amish view where we all gather around the fire at night and we read Second Chronicles together. All four kids sit quietly by the fireside, eagerly awaiting to hear God's word. No, it's chaos in our house, right? He pinched me. He hit me. And that's just me. I'm engaging with the kids, you know? Jamie's trying to keep us all in line. So a few weeks ago, we were reading, and we're always wanting to teach our kids that God is speaking one word to his people from, from Genesis to Revelation, and that is this deliverer will come. And they're learning it. So we're in Psalm 2, and I open up Psalm 2, and I say, guys, be listening. There's some incredible things happening. There's a secret person in Psalm 2. We've really got to be listening, though, if we're going to see it, if we're going to hear it. And Caden, our eight-year-old, says, Dad, we know it's Jesus. It's always Jesus. And he's right. So echoing through these pages throughout the Old Testament is a deliverer will come. A Messiah will come. God will come. And he's right. God has always been speaking to his people. And even this decoration that we see represented in this room today is our understanding that God has always spoken. That God has made promises to his people. And that by believing in those promises, people were saved. Just like us, by believing in the promises of God, we also are called to faith and life in the name of Jesus. But while our fathers walked in the shadows, we dance in the light of God's revelation. Our eyes have seen what the prophets and what the angels have longed to look. We have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So friends, be encouraged today that God has always spoken to us. And God is faithful to keep every one of his promises. God has always spoken. The second thing that we see in this text is in Christ, God speaks the final word. In Christ, God speaks the final word. Read with me verse 2. But in these last days... He, God, has spoken to us by his Son. Now this is meant to blow our minds. The, the God who made us now becomes like us to communicate with us. 
This message that he had to proclaim would not be, it wouldn't be sufficient just from the mouths of prophets or just through the signs that would come. It would take God himself in this glorious condescension and this great humbling of the uncreated God stepping into humanity in order to proclaim good news to us who were in bondage, good news to us who were in darkness. The self-disclosure of God had been cracking through the shadows, and now it was time for the sun to shine in his full glory. The word of God was spoken. Jesus, the final word. And so the hope of the writer in these words is that comfort would fill our hearts. So my goal today in this text is very simple. The writer of this letter has no time for introductions. Throughout most of the New Testament writings, when a letter is being written, there is an, a, an address given. This is who the letter is to. This is who it's from. But this writer has a sense of urgency where these, these minor acts have to be swept away. He's so myopic and centered in his approach. He wants us to see Jesus. He wants us to keep believing, to taste and see that God is good and Jesus is better than any of the claims that are heard upon the earth. The invitation from the writer of Hebrews is come and believe. Come and believe. And so my goal today is simply to lead us in worship through this text I want to see Christ, how he's portrayed here. I want you to see Christ as portrayed here. I've prayed for you for years now from a distance, praying that when dad gets up here to proclaim God's word, that the gospel would bring life and joy and comfort to your hearts. And it's a joy to be able to be here with you today as we worship together by seeing Christ, by beholding his glory. And by his grace being changed into the image and likeness of Jesus. So together, let's walk through what this writer is saying. I know on your notes you have seven things that you have outlined. But there's actually going to be 49 points that I want you to see in this sermon. Now that laughter could be one of joy or of fear. You've heard dad's sermons. They are long. And I'm trying to just extend the family tree and make them even longer. No, I'm kidding. There are seven things. Only seven. And what these seven points are, really sub-points of Christ the word, the final word that God speaks, these are the identities of Christ. These are the identities of the word of God. The first thing that we see is that Christ is the Son the writer wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants us to see clearly. And the first thing we see here is that Jesus is the Son. Now this is before the incarnation, before the Spirit places the seed in this woman to bring forth life. This is Christ the Son, the second person of the Trinity. As Christians, we believe that God is one and that God is three, that he's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in this mysterious, divine, glorious union that God is one and God is three. And so the Son was not given, he did not become the Son in the incarnation. He has always been the Son, the second person of the Trinity. 
But clothed in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Now we see the second person of the Godhead, Christ, stepping into our suffering, stepping into the human condition in order that he might redeem for himself a people. This is what's happening. This is who the word of God is. He is the son. He's always been and always will be the son. Now the apostle John comes to our help in this when he writes to begin his evangelistic gospel presentation, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's helpful to, in, in, in letting us see that this is the Christ who has always been, from the very beginning was there with the Father, ruling and reigning in the praise of angels. And now he is placed into Mary's womb, this same eternal God, born of a virgin. So the father of Jesus is not simply Joseph. The father of Jesus is God himself. Joseph would rear this boy and teach him carpentry and and how to then live in light of God's revelation. But Jesus is the son of God. Number two, Christ is the heir. Christ is the heir. We see here in Verse 2, that Christ is the heir whom he appointed the heir of all things. And what the writer is showing us here is that the inheritance of all of creation belongs to Christ. In just a moment, this writer will go on to reference Psalm chapter 2, where all of the nations are given to Jesus as his glorious inheritance. So every, every tree that grows in the still of the wood and every flickering of the butterfly's wing and every baby's cry and every couple that stands before him in marriage and every old man's last breath are all for the glory of Christ. We are his inheritance. And now all of creation is groaning because of sin. But all of us are moving toward one glorious aim, the glory of Jesus. We are his. We are his possession, and he is ours. He is the rich of the Christian life. He is our treasure, and we are his. Christ is the inheritor of all things. Paul would say in Colossians, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Christ is the inheritor and he's worthy of all things. Number three, Christ is the creator of all things. The creator of all things, the writer says, through whom he created the world. What? Now every Jewish kid right now has stepped up onto his seat and said, Okay, well, our scripture says, the Holy Torah says in Genesis 1-1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So what you're doing now is telling us that, that Jesus, the Son, the heir of all things, that he created all things? Yes, that's right. But what you're doing there, you have to be so careful. What you're doing is saying that Christ is equal with God. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And any Hebrew kid that had been in school longer than a day knew this was either blasphemy or every promise being fulfilled. And so this little church that the writer of Hebrews writes into, he wants to saturate them in the reality that Jesus is this God. Jesus is this Messiah. He is the one who created all things. 
The same God who breathed galaxies into existence now lays panting for breath in his mother's arms. This is the Christ who has created all things. In John chapter 1 verse 3, he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, the word of God, was not a created thing. He is the creator of all things. Out of nothing, he creates everything into being. Number four, Christ is the radiance of God's glory. The radiance of God's glory. It says he's the radiance of the glory of God. Now, this word radiance isn't used anywhere else in the Bible. The writer is being so careful. His words matter. He doesn't say that Christ is a reflection, but is the actual radiance. Christ is not the moon. Christ is the sun. It would be right and good to say that Christ is reflecting God's glory, but it wouldn't be enough. What the writer wants us to see is that there are twin sources to God's glory. It is the Father and the Son radiating truth to us, speaking to us a true and better word, ringing good news. This is who I am. Making himself known, the God of self-disclosure. The Son is the Father on display. The Son is the word of the Father communicating to mankind. He's flexing his power in a way that we understand. Entering into our sadness. Entering into creation. And what God wants us to see here is if we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. He's the exact radiance of God. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. Radiance of his glory. Number five, Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. The exact imprint. Well, what does this mean? Well, what the writer's doing here is speaking in a language that we understand. You see, long before these little magical pieces of plastic that we use when we go to Walmart or any shopping center we choose, there were, there were real money that people used. Do you remember this? If you're under the age of 20, you may have never seen, we have these green bills, they're called dollars, they're real. You can use them to exchange things. And, and on our, our currency are the faces of important people, right? This wasn't a, a new idea in America, this has been the tradition of people essentially from the Roman era. And this is one of the ways the king would exercise jurisdiction over his land. He would put his own face on the currency of the people. Many of the people would never have even seen the king or the governor of the region. But they had seen his glory. They had seen his face and his likeness if they had seen the currency. So they would make these dyes in order to exactly imprint them on each coin of currency. So when you, when you would hold in, a, in your hand the currency of the king, you would know his glory. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is the exact thing that, that Christ is for us. If you have seen Christ, you have seen the Father. If you've seen the glory of Jesus, you've seen the glory of the Father. They are one in the same. If you want to know the Father, look at the Son. 
If you're here today and saying, God, please still speak to me, look to the Son. If you want to say, God, I want to know what you're like, please let me know. Look to the Son. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. We have seen him. We've seen his glory. We've seen the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the imago Dei. God is the, is the expression of God in flesh, making known to us who the Father is. Number six, Christ is the sustainer of all things. Verse two says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the Christ who created all things out of nothing and sets them into motion, it's not that he has now stepped out of creation. Our God is not the great clockmaker. He is the great creator, sustainer of all things. So God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, in his providence, is ruling and reigning in the affairs of our life. What does this mean to us? Brothers and sisters, we are not alone. We're not alone. God hasn't left us. Even the ascension of Christ, God is with us in the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God is with us in and through the church of Jesus Christ. God is with us. He is the provider, the sustainer of all things. So we're people who are helped. It's what happens now to our faith when our eyes behold and are renewed, rekindled around the reality that Christ is with us, that Christ is actively ruling and reigning over every moment of every day of every year of our lives. We're not a forgotten people. We are a remembered, carried along, helped people. And God is with us. Christ is the sustainer of all things. And number seven, Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the Messiah. Read with me verse three. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As if it weren't enough. As if it weren't enough that he's the son and the heir and the creator and the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprints of his nature and the sustainer. It's even better. It's even better than we could have hoped. Christ is our Messiah. The one who all of the prophets and the writings and the law point to. It's him and he's here. Come and believe. You who are weary in your faith, come and believe. You who the gospel has grown stale on your heart, come and believe. Position your heart around the fire of this gospel and be warmed again in its reality. Christ has set us free. Christ has paid it all. This is stunning news to us here in verse 3 when it says, after making purification for sins. Guys, this is a big deal. I was meeting with a guy a couple of weeks ago for breakfast and I said, do you feel dirty? He said, yes. This is a guy who's not yet a Christian. By God's grace, who may be any day, may even be in this moment now. I said, what will you do with your sin? What will you do with that? Let me tell you what people did. 
Before Christ, we see in the book of Leviticus and throughout Moses' writings, he tells us exactly what to do if we want to have a relationship with him. It looks like this. I'm standing in my home and I sin. Now that may shock some of you. Okay. And I sin. And what do I do then? Well, I walk to the temple. And in order to have now right relationship with God, there must be a sacrifice made. Now, I'm not going to tell you my sin because it's pretty grievous, but it's not too bad. So with me, I brought a couple of doves, and I would sacrifice these doves. A priest would sacrifice them on my behalf. And once again, relationship with God would be restored. And I would go back home. And, oh, my goodness, I did it again. I, I thought I wouldn't do it again, but I, I did it again. So back to the temple. Now, now this time, I, I don't think the, just the doves will do. So now I'm going to take a sheep. I'm going to take this, this is a great sheep. My kids love this sheep. And we're going to sacrifice this sheep for, for dad's sin. I, I thought I wouldn't do it again, but I, can't, I just, I can't stop. And so, forgiveness, bloodshed, the ram is killed, and I am once again brought into right relationship with God. I go back home. And maybe I make it a whole week without this particular sin this time. Maybe a month. I'm really pious and go a couple of months. But this, this pull towards sin is bound up in my heart. And, and here I am. Here I am again. I, I thought I wouldn't do it. I know there's consequences to the sin. And yet I choose to do what is wrong, knowing what God has said. And so I'm going to go back to the temple. And this time it's going to take a bull because I, I can't quit. And my sin continues to increase so now we go to the temple again and we make sacrifice. This bull is slaughtered in my place. And once again, right relationship is restored with God. That is what the law demanded, that blood be shed. There's an old hymn that was one of my favorite hymns. We don't know the author. It says, run and work the law commands, but finds me neither feet nor hands. Sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. So what does this look like? After making purification of sin, it says, I was a sinner lost in darkness, dead in my sin, and Christ has brought me to life in him. And that's happened, so now I'm standing in my home, and I sin, and it is finished. And a week later, I thought I would repent and move on and never do that again. But dadgummit, I did it again. And it is finished. There's no more going back to the temple again and again trying to make myself right. Because brothers and sisters, Christ has done it all. This is the good news of the bells of the gospel ringing. And under this old system, there was a priest that would go in once a year, this great high priest, and they would attach to his jacket bells. And so while he's doing the work of sacrifice, people would be hearing these bells proclaim good news. Our sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. And here in the gospel, here in the coming of Christ, we hear this great bell rung declaring, It is finished. Christ has come and fulfilled the law once and for all. Your sins, Christian, have been forgiven. And if you're here this morning apart from Christ, today your sins can be forgiven. 
Christ has paid the debt. He's paid it all. After making purification of sin, he sat down. The bell has rung. He sat down. Now, under the old covenant here, you see, when the great high priest was in the temple working, if the bell stopped, the news was bad. If the bell stopped ringing, the brother has died and God has judged this man and his people by death. And so this man had attached to his ankle a rope and they would pull his dead body out. So when the bell stopped ringing, that was bad news. But here, the bell stopped ringing because the work is done. The work is done. Christ has done it all. And so now there he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Here's what he's doing. He is proclaiming good news to you and to me. Come and believe. The work is done. You're a forgetful people, and so I'll keep reminding you. You're a forgetful people, so I'll send my spirit. You're a stubborn people, so I'll put you with a lot of stubborn people, and together you'll become more like Jesus. And into our clumsiness and into our sin, Christ stands leading us as his people. And this Messiah, this word that is spoken, has a mission. And the mission is that every tribe and every tongue and every nation would come and know this forgiveness. That we can be clean from our sin. We can be clean. And it's the blood of Christ that speaks a better word. That God and sinner can be reconciled. God says matters. How he says it matters. God's loudest word is Jesus Christ. God's loudest word is the blood that was spilled on our behalf so that we might be reconciled to God. Would you bow your head where you are to pray for us? Good morning. We're excited to get to start our time of worship this morning with uh, these two young people coming to give their testimony 
of their belief in Jesus Christ and their desire to be marked as a Christ follower. This is Alina, and if you are here and you're part of Alina's family or friend or life group, would you stand so we could recognize you as you've come to celebrate with her this morning? Alina, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? Yes. Because of that decision, it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. This is Dustin, and if you are part of Dustin's family or friends or life group, would you stand? Dustin, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? Yes. Because of that decision, it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. 